I'm Sean Delaney, and you're listening to What Got You There. What Got You There is a must-follow for entrepreneurs, creatives, high achievers, and change makers. Each week, I sit down with some of the world's most influential people and focus on the journey behind their success. We uncover the strategy, tactics, and routines that help them get there. Now it's your journey, so it's time to learn what's going to get you there. Uh, what got you there? What got you, got you Stephen Kotler is a New York Times bestselling author, executive director of the Flow Research Collective, and peak performance expert. Stephen first appeared on the podcast on episode number 43, where we cover much of his backstory. But on this episode, Stephen discusses his new book, The Art of Impossible, which delves into how to decode motivation, learning, creativity, and flow, previously thought of as unteachable skills. Drawing on his two decades of experience, cutting-edge neuroscience research, and interviews with elite performers, on this episode, Kotler distills insights he used to educate over a 1,000 people a month, including executives at Fortune 100 companies, Olympian athletes, and members of the U.S. Special Forces. Hey, it's Sean. And before we get started on this week's episode, I wanted to share what I've been working on behind the scenes for the past few months. And that's my new technology job hiring startup called Culture Finders. Culture Finders is here to save the millions of people from working in jobs they hate and dread going to every day. If you've ever been in a job you can't stand or hired someone who looked great on their resume, but turned out not to be great and destructive to your company's culture, then listen up because Culture Finders is for you. Culture Finders is a technology-backed talent matching service that connects job seekers with employers based on optimal culture matching, so both parties can seamlessly merge together. When you create a profile, you'll receive your culture connection score and get matched with your dream company based on maximal compatibility and shared interest. To create your profile, all you have to do is play our fun brain games, uncover your unique personality profile, and answer a few questions. That's it. You're just a few clicks away from connecting to the opportunity that's been waiting for you. If you're a job seeker looking for that dream job or run a company who wants to save the headache of bad hires, head to culturefinders.com to get set up with your culture connection score today. That's culturefinders.com. Steven, welcome to What Got You There. How are you doing today? I'm well. How are you? I'm doing really well. Very much looking forward to this. And the last time we had you on was three years ago on episode 43. So I'm wondering for you, where do you think you've evolved the most for the past three years? Well, I'll answer it if you'll answer it. Um, okay. Yeah. I mean, how, do you th- how do you think you've evolved in the last three years? Yeah. So I, I think I've, I've really largely in part due to these conversations, talking to experts and, and world leading authorities, much like yourself, uh, it's really reshaped my perception, right? Like we each have our own lenses on the world and, and how we see things. And all of a sudden we get to talk to all these change makers who have these completely new paradigm shifts in, in how we, we view things. And I think for me, just understanding other people's lenses and then seeing the world differently has kind of been one of the big, biggest wake-ups for me. That's a great wake-up. It's a great wake-up. Um, over the past three years, okay, so honestly, the biggest change, as I said to my wife over the summer, we, after like 10 years of like figuring out how to do it, moved um, to a, a, a new place that is and built a house and it's perfect for us. And, you know, my company is doing what I want to be doing. And I said this to my wife, I said, I'm getting used to this very strange new feeling. I don't know what it's called. I think they call it contentment. I'm not sure. It's freaking me out a little. And it really actually was freaking me out because 
I've sort of run like on like the positive application of fear and anxiety. You know what I mean? My whole life, like I just run at challenge, at challenge, at challenge, and that constant like anxiety in my brain sort of keeps me a little safe, right? It's an edge. And I was really nervous that like contentment, that complacency, and you know, blah, blah, blah. And it didn't, turns out, right? Like you can, it actually means uh, much for me, it's meant lower cognitive load, lower crap up here that's getting between me and kind of creative problem solving and, and, and good craft, good decision making, all that, all that stuff that's really important to me. But I would never have known. Because I've literally, like, I'm 53 years old. It's the first time in my life I've ever, like, yeah, okay. I'm playing at the level I wanted to play at. I'm doing what I wanted to do. I'm doing it with the people I love. I laugh on a regular basis. You know, the quality of the work keeps going up. The quality of the science keeps going. You know, those are the things that matter to me um, a lot. And, you know, it that it's a weird lesson for me. You know what I mean? Like, okay, took me long enough, but you know, there's nothing here. I won't eventually learn the hard way. Yeah. It's funny. I feel like I'm similar, right? Like always tiptoeing where we've just got to keep pushing and that level of contentness, contentness, the second you're there, it's like, wait a second. I don't know. I've got, I've got to be pushing my boundaries, pushing my limits. And that's why I'm really excited for this conversation. So the new book, the art of impossible, uh, we've got it here. I want to start off with how you start the book off. Um, I think this will really set some good context and framework. So I'm going to start with a quote. This is a book about what it takes to do the impossible. In a very real sense, it's a practical playbook for impractical people. It's designed specifically for those of us with completely irrational standards for our own performance and totally unreasonable expectations for our lives. I love it. That's like what I'm fully into. That's why people listen to the show. For you, I, I want to know where this even came from, what, this this idea of tackling these really big challenges. Where did that start for you? Really, my career has sort of been defined by seeking out those moments when the impossible becomes possible. And the truth of the matter is history is littered with those moments. I mean, it's littered with those moments. And I got a sec especially lucky because whether you're talking about science fiction ideas becoming science fact technology or like individual innovators taking on global challenges like poverty and energy scarcity um, or athletes, four minute miles, you know, biggest cliff talk ever, blah, blah, blah. All that stuff has massively accelerated over the past 20 to 30 years. We've seen more impossibles in a condensed frame of mind, so many so that I used it as a data set. Hmm. Every domain available, I went in there and I tried to use the tools of neuroscience and psychology, more specifically neuroscience, we can talk about why in a second, to decode what the hell is going on in the brain and the body when people are accomplishing that which has never been done, paradigm shifting breakthroughs, right? Nothing is the same again ever feats kind of thing. And it turns out there's a blueprint. And of course there's a blueprint, right? The secret to peak performance is getting our biology to work for us rather than against us. There's just our biology. And as, especially when it comes to the cognitive side, which is really where the book focuses, the mental side, um, there are foundational principles and there's a sequence, there's an order, there's steps. And it's really like Doing the impossible seems like this incredibly insane mystery that, you know, rare people figure out. And what could the rest of us learn from that? Nothing. But it turns out it's exactly the opposite. And, you know, the way I frame it in the book is what we've been talking about just now. I've been blabbing for a while, by the way. I'll shut no, up. I, know, I love it. <laughs> um, 
we've been talking about the four minute miles, the like cultural impossibles, Rosa Parks sitting at the front of the bus, those kinds of things. That's capital I impossible, right? There's also lowercase I impossible, in my opinion. And that's, I think, where the book really it, it does its work. Lowercase I impossible is all that stuff we believe is impossible for us. And at least for a while. And so examples, this could be rising out of poverty. This could be opening deep trauma. This could become reaching like true craft mastery and excellence in any of the creative arts in acting and dance in theater, becoming a brilliant mathematician or coder or architect. For me, growing up in Cleveland, Ohio and wanting to be a writer wasn't impossible. I didn't know any writers. I had no, the point is when there's no clear line between where you are and where you want to go, there's no guidelines, there's no map and statistically extremely poor chances of success, right? Really, really poor chances of success. When I think about a creative career, I, I learned this lesson really early on in graduate school. I was told as soon as I got to art school, basically, that 0.05% of everybody comes through five years after art school will be working in a creative career. Forget about your chosen field. I'm just talking about a creative career. Like you have 50 people and half a person in that room um, can actually do what they want for a living. Right. So that's statistically incredibly poor odds of success. Writing is like that. Making films is like that. Think becoming a great scientist is like that. I'm interested in people who want to exceed their limitations, exceed their expectations and level up their game like never before. And I'm interested in the patterns in the brain that underlie that behavior and allow us to make it possible. And that's sort of what the art of impossible is about. Yeah, I mean, we're at this really cool time now where, where the neuroscience is actually backing up some of the things that you've been toying with for a long time here. Uh, and believe me, we're going we're to get into that neuroscience because I, I absolutely love that. But you said something that I absolutely love, and that's history is littered with the impossible. And you had a great story about a mentor who kind of showed you that the impossible actually does have a formula. Do you remember the story you shared in the book with your mentor? Are you? Are we talking about the, the magic story, the prestidigitation yep, story? Yeah. Okay, so um, I... Uh, I got into this sort of the earliest example of this. This is the story you wanted to get at. I was nine years old. I had a big kid brother. He was seven. Comes home from a friend's house, pulls out a ripe, bright red sponge ball, shows it to me, shows it to mom, puts it in his other hand and it disappears. Now, doesn't sound like all that impossible. I get that. But I'm nine years old. I live in the suburbs of Cleveland, Ohio. I've never seen magic before. And my little brother just did magic. And at that moment, I realized two things had to be true. One, um, my little brother wasn't magic, right? He's never levitated. He doesn't walk through walls. I can't turn invisible. So, okay, so that's not real. And if you made the impossible seem possible, there has to be a skill set underneath it. And the, I was fascinated by this idea that like the even impossible illusions could have skill sets. Like you could do things that look impossible and they're not actually. And I dove into magic. I became a magician. I worked for almost a decade as a professional magician. Um, and one of my early mentors, Joe Leffler used to say very little is impossible with 10 years practice. Hmm. He was specifically talking about magic, like the best tricks in the world by the best magicians, the hardest things that there were to figure out, they required massive amounts of dexterity and timing, misdirection, pattern, all this, all these skills. But almost anybody, including me at 11 years old, could do it. And he literally sort of forced me to, this isn't in the book, but he forced me to do it. He said, we, were, we had been talking about this 
trick that had showed up and nobody knew how it was done. It was a beautiful card effect. And he said, why don't you go home, figure this out and do it. It's, it's a trick by the best magician in the world, figure out how we did it and, tr- and try to learn it and fool somebody. That's how, you know, and I did, it took a very, very, very long time, but you know, it was this one moment of, oh my God, here's this absolutely impossible thing that less than 1% of even the magicians in the world can do. And I figured it out from scratch. And I was like 11 or 12 or 13 years old. I sort of did it with him working with me, but it was a really great lesson. It took like five years to actually practice and get it down. And I think I only successfully ever did it once where I actually fooled people. The trick was so complicated, it would fall apart. My hands were too small, all this shit, but I got it once. And I got that taste of, oh, wow, anything's possible with 10 years practice. Yeah, you, you mentioned just getting the taste of that. And I, I love these epiphany-esque moments throughout our life. I mean, I'm sure we can all point to just a handful that forever changed the trajectory of our life. So I love hearing these backstories for you. I, I am wondering, though, like certain people have these opportunities where, where they have these moments a mentor comes in and can shape who they become. And certain people don't go after that. So I'm wondering for you, like what's driving this inside of you that, that you decide to take on those challenges? I can't tell you, but I can tell you that I noticed. So I remember getting to college into a creative writing program. Now, mind you, I'm a freshman in college. I've been writing a long time, but I'm just about as bad as everybody else in that class. Right. But everybody in the class was competing against each other. Like they wanted to be the best writer in the creative writing class kind of thing. And I always was like, because I'd had this experience at magic, I was like, I don't give a fuck about like John or Mary sitting across from me. I'm going after Hemingway. I want to kill Thomas Pynchon. I write like, that's what I wanted to do. And this is by the way, Hemingway talks about this in writing. Like Hemingway says he wanted to kill those Passos and Norm Mailer said he wanted to kill Hemingway and George Clinton wanted to kill me. Like there's a tradition of sort of this. And of course you can't kill anybody and you're never going to be a better writer but like it never dawned on me that I was competing against the guy sitting next to me or the woman sitting next to me. It just now, I mean, maybe you, maybe that's not normal. I just never thought about it. I was like, well, find me the best in the world and, and let's see what they got. Yeah. Right. I'm going to go up against that. Even if I get crushed. Um, and that's sort of how I've always approached it. So I don't know, but I also, um, I will say that a lot of my, belief systems about these ideas got a helpful or unhelpful push from my partnership with Peter Diamandis, Mm -hmm. who founded the X prize, who I write about in there. Peter wanted to unlock the space frontier, right? Like he wanted people to go into space. NASA said, we can't build a reusable spaceship. It's not possible. Nobody will do it. And Peter said, no, we're going to have a contest for the first team to do it. And it was such an impossibly crazy thing to do. And it was also, by the way, like the third impossible thing Peter had done. I don't tell those stories in the book, but like he's done some of the craziest stuff and he leveled up in such like sneaky, but truthful, like transparent sneakiness in a sense um, along the, it's just like I, I had for 25 years, one of my closest friends has been a guy who shares, who thinks about it the way I think about it. There's, Peter's got laws he lives by. And one of them is if at first you don't succeed, start all over again at the next level up. Hmm. And right. Like I do that all the time, right? Like I'll take on a, you know, a bigger challenge as a way to solve a lesser challenge kind of thing. 
Uh, a simple example is I was trying to write the future is faster than you think, which is about converging exponential technologies. And we were putting them together in a world and I needed to see how they would all work in the 10 years in the future. So I didn't know how to do that in the context of nonfiction. So I switched to fiction. I wrote an entire novel, Last Tango in Cyberspace, where I took all the concepts that we were going to be writing about in, in, in faster, put them into a science fiction book, created a world and wrote that story. Mind you, I hadn't written a novel in like 25 years. And the last time I did, I wasn't particularly great. I, I, it was a ridiculously hard challenge, but it was also the only way to solve the puzzle I had to solve in faster. And um, I'm not, those things don't bother me. They don't scare me at all. You know what I mean? I'm like, oh, okay, so you got to write a novel in the middle of writing this other book. Cool, go. You mentioned Peter Diamandis, and I, I'm pretty sure that's how I actually first came across you. I mean, this is a number of years ago with Bold and just just taking on just these massive challenges. Um, so that's that's an excellent read. We'll link that up in the show notes. But I, I'm curious. You, you did mention you, Peter lives by these certain laws he has. Are, are these laws he's actually like written out and articulated to you? Oh, or yeah, you can Google Peter's laws. Yeah, there's 24, but I think they're actually in bold now that I think about it. Yeah, because we break them down at one point. Um, but he's got a poster I think you can order if you want. Um, I, uh, I'm i not that bold. <laughs> you know what I mean? And I also, I believe what works for me probably won't work for you, right? We I, I said this in the book. Oftentimes, one of the problems we see a lot in, in peak performance and coaching and, all, and trying to train up this stuff is – People try to train other people in what works for them. And we, biology scales. It's the thing that works for everybody. It's what evolution designed to work for everybody. Personality. There are, when it comes to peak performance, things like where are you on the introversion to extroversion scale, which is mostly genetic or set up by early childhood experience, or what are your risk tolerances, which really come down to the receptivity of your dopamine receptors and right how much dopamine you get, how receptive are the receptors, um, if that sentence even makes sense. Um, that's genetic. That's stuff, but huge impact, right? I'm a high-risk person. I like taking big risks. They don't mess me up. If I try to train others in what works for me and you're, you don't share my risk tolerances, my stuff is going to screw you up badly. It's not going to work for you. And um, I learned this, by the way, the hard way. You'll you'll notice in and around the self-help space, peak performance space, people sort of get a little bit of knowledge and they start telling their friends how to live their lives, right? And I had this advantage over the end of my career because I was publishing books and articles about right flow and those things. And so like my friends were coming to me for advice and I was doing blah, blah, blah. You know, like a three-year period, I put two people in the hospital. I nearly caused a divorce. One dude who was very close to me stopped talking to me, um, were friends again. Another person who was a very dear friend of mine still hasn't talked to me again. I mean, like I broke stuff. Personality doesn't scale. Biology scales. The way I always, you know, if I was training people to do exactly what I do to get into flow, right? If that's what the idea was, we would all, I'd be out there being like, all right, here's what you, you got to find a deserted part of a mountain with really steep, tight trees. We're going to ski through these trees at 40 miles an hour. We're going to get really stoned and we're going to listen to the Wu-Tang Clan at top volume. That's the plan. That's how you get better. Right? I mean, are you kidding me? But that's so much of bro coaching is exactly that. And it's crazy talk. Right. That's not how it works. Um, but if you can get underneath the biology, 
there's a blueprint that works for everyone. Yeah, this to actually circle back to the beginning question of this conversation, one of the things I'm <laughs> yeah. learning is, yeah, I mean, you'd listen to certain people and it's like, oh yeah, th- this is how they did it. I- I've got to follow this to a T and I-, I view this as game selection. And I mean, I was just so astronomically off in terms of like what I was pursuing because it wasn't aligning with my biology. Um, and-, and so that was a big issue. And that's what I love. Like you decouple th- these huge, massive principles and break down the science to, to how we can find them and kind of like manipulate them for our own beneficial benefic- personality as you point as you probably noticed two things are true one i I can't prove this but i can 90 80 to 90 percent prove it to you we appeared as a species to be designed to go big and one of the ways i can tell you that is if you don't sort of follow the biology right if you're not aligned prop if your motivation isn't aligned properly with the way you set your goals and you blah, 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 the way all these things work together. Those are all made. There are nine major causes of depression. Seven of them are essentially getting peak performance things wrong. Hmm. Depression, anxiety appears to be, we're goal-directed beings, human beings are. Like we filter the world predominantly through stuff that scares us and stuff we want. And one or the other will win always basically. Uh, but and but goal direction is what we do at every scale. We do that, and we're built to go after these large challenges. And when you tap into that, it's what is what what is technically called was ne- named this by a neuroscientist named Yach concept, the seeking system, hmm. right? If you tap into the seeking system, for example, the it we're, it, it's very healthy for us, right? Passion and purpose; these are powerful intrinsic motivators lack of passion, lack of purpose. These are major causes of depression. These are right. And anxiety. Um, and one of the, I think, so one of the reasons I think we're seeing so much sort of crippling anxiety, depression, frustration, et cetera, in society is we're not, we're not sort of setting our sights on big enough challenges. So for you, I mean, I'm just wondering about you uncovering your purpose. Cause, cause I know in the book you, you hit on that. What can someone learn from you? Maybe not the exact same takeaway. Well, how to pur- purpose is easy. You, I mean, purpose is go. I mean, we, we put it online, the passion recipe, which is what the book opens with. So here's the simple idea. Human beings are essentially motivated by two things, extrinsic motivators, external to the self. So money, sex, fame, right? Things you're going out trying to get food, right? or internal motivators, intrinsic motivators, curiosity. I want to go check something out. Um, passion. Oh my God. I can't stop thinking about this. Right. Um, purpose. Oh my God. I have to feed the hungry, whatever. These are big intrinsic motivators. And it turns out there are about five core intrinsic motivators. And the way the biology is designed to work is curiosity is essentially the most basic fuel of motivation, right? I am curious about something. Passion is essentially when you, if you can identify four or five or 10 things you're curious about and find a place that three or four or five of them really intersect, that's a lot of energy. When five or six of your major curiosities intersect at one point on one thing, that's the seed kernel of passion. You cultivate that over time and couple to it to a cause greater than yourself. Now you've got purpose. Once you have purpose, by the way, what do you need next? Autonomy is the freedom to pursue your purpose, right? And once you have that, 
What do you need? Mastery, the skills to get better and pursue your purpose. And that's the stack. That's how biology is actually designed to work. So if you go to passionrecipe.com, um, we have claimed the URL. This is, uh, we can give this to your listeners. Um, this is uh, essentially the exercise we built for uh, anybody. It's what's laid out in the Art Impossible. We're just sort of giving it away to people because um, it's pretty easy to run the couple things to know about this. There are more steps in between that involve sort of playing with your passion in very specific ways. Um, the reason that's so important, you want to go slow here. If you don't know what your passion and purpose is, you don't want to be two to three years into a passion to only discover it was a fake, right? Like that that's really demotivating <laughs> and it's demotivating for you. And think about like being a kid. You get really into something for a couple of years. Your parents spend lots of money to send you to the Natural History Museum for dinosaur classes and all that money on the models and everything else. And suddenly it's not dinosaurs, it's comic books. Demotivating for the folks around you too, right? After a little while, they stop trusting you a little bit. So you don't want to screw that up. You want to go slowly through those steps. A lot of, almost everything else in the book is either a thick, it, it literally comes down to six things you do every day and seven things you do every week. That's the final summary of it. But there's a bunch of stuff you got to do first before you get to that point. This is one of those things. And it's sort of where you start. You don't even want to set goals, right? Because your goals have to, again, three tiers of goals as we break it down in the book, but the goals have to be reflective of curiosity, passion, purpose, autonomy, and mastery. They all got to be lined up um, to get the most value. And very quickly, because I don't want to mystify all this, what you get at each step of the way is a little more neurochemistry, right? It starts out, curiosity is a little bit norepinephrine and dopamine. Passion is more norepinephrine and dopamine. Purpose is essentially norepinephrine and dopamine coupled to like a little serotonin, a little, these are better, bigger pleasure chemicals and so forth. Um, and the whole point of this is the system builds on itself um, <clears throat> in that way. And what do you get out of it? Focus. Focus for free. That's the big deal. Performance is very few levers, as most of us know. It's focus and attention. It's habits, right? There aren't a whole lot we have to work with at a real level. There's a couple of the handful of other things. The brain, 2% of your body weight, 25% of your energy at rest. Huge energy hog. Focus, very expensive, right? Think about what it takes to pay attention to something you're not interested in. Think about what it's like to do a work task you don't want to do, that you feel isn't in line with your values. Your like That's resistance. Now you need grit. Now you got to work harder. But if all this stuff is lined up, you get focus for free. You get the most expensive thing the body has to do, essentially, consciously. What am I going to pay attention to? What am I choosing to filter out? And you get it for free on the stuff that matters most to you. And since flow is, which is at the core of my work, the state underneath of optimal performance flow always follows focus. Anything that drives our attention to the right here, right now can help produce flow. So not only if by stacking all these things up, do you get focus for free, but flow, which is this huge, enormous boost in productivity and performance and innovation, creativity and learning and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, is the result of getting it right. And that will only boost performance even farther. 
Wow. I, I love this. So, so many holes we can go down. I, I'm curious real quick. So even after one of these podcasts, I put so much energy effort and I'm just like fully focused on this. And a lot of times just ended up in, in, a, in a flow state. But later in the day, even shortly after sometimes, I just feel like absolutely drained and wrecked. Like I, I, would, I would love to decouple that even more from just, just hearing this from you. So quick, simply put, two things to know here. We'll do them fast. Flow is not a binary. It's not a light switch. You're not in the zone or out of the zone. It's a four-stage cycle that you have to move through. And on the back end, after a flow state, there is a recovery period. I teach in the book recovery as a grit skill. Peak performers have the grit to recover. They pursue active recovery. They don't. Passive recovery is TV and a beer. Active recovery is breath work and meditation and mindfulness, uh, kind of yoga, but not vigorous yoga, more like stretching yoga, a hot Epsom salt bath, a nap, a sauna, eight to nine hours of sleep a night, those kinds of really deep principles. And they adhere, they have, they know it's a grit skill because it's hard after a day, even after a flow state, you're, you're fired up. You did this kick-ass thing in the world and you sort of want to keep going. You want to keep chasing that feeling and no, you've actually got to shut it down. Um, and you really, in flow, you really, one of the secrets to a high flow lifestyle is actually learning to not ride the up to up hmm. because that up is neurochemically expensive. It's dopamine and norepinephrine and your body is burning energy to create those chemicals and it's burning resources to create those chemicals. And you sort of like, you want them for the state, for the thing you're doing. And then when you're done doing the thing you're doing, you want to put it down as fast as you possibly can. This is why rock stars who have been on, who have done this for a while, they get off stage and they go back to the hotel room as fast as possible to be alone. And it sounds, it's the weirdest thing in the world, literally to go from a hundred thousand people screaming at you to I'm alone in a hotel room. I'm just like any other schmuck alone in a hotel room. It sucks. You know what I mean? Like the same deal, but they, they get it because you don't, if you, if you keep riding that high too high, you go to the after party and you try to chase the high one, you can chase it with substances. Never good. Two, you're chasing a feeling that you'd rather have the next night when you were on stage, right? So they shut it down because they know by shutting it down, they're going to get more of it the next time they need it. How did you figure that out for yourself, right? Like that oscillation. How did you know when you're riding that flow wave and it's, you know what, if if I want this to be better next time, I've got to end this. That's that's supposed to be a really hard thing to figure out. I think it's, yeah, I think it's really hard to figure out. I think it's individual. I think it's situational. I have, I start to notice. So one of the ways I can, it's easier for me to answer this question, create as a creative, as a writer. So when you get a lot of dopamine in your system and norepinephrine, but predominantly dopamine, that amplifies pattern matching and pattern recognition, the ability to lump like with like. So what you get a lot of this in creative flow states. It's why one good idea leads to the next, leads to the next, leads to the next, right? That's pattern matching. It's triggered by more dopamine in your system, which you get a lot of in flow. There's a point at which it's diminishing returns. And there's a point at which I start to notice more bigger tangents in my thinking. There's also a point at which it, if stuff becomes grandiose, that's always a sign it's time for me to cut it off. Grandiosity um, is uh, something else that comes with dopamine and you want to like, it's the thing. We have t-shirts at the Flow Research Collective that's the only swag we have. 
um, it says never trust the dopamine. Like it's the greatest feel good chemical in the world that massively amplifies performance. Scott Schmidt, early uh, big mountain extreme skier used to say um, about flow, flow makes me feel like Superman up until the moment I'm not. That's the dopamine, right? And everybody's got to figure out where their line is. Um, but one way to do that is we sort of know that flow can amplify your skills roughly at any one time. Like you can push to stay in the challenge skills sweet spot, the golden rule of flow, flow's most important trigger, like the task at hand, the challenge of it slightly exceeds your skill sets. So you want to strike on snap. That's in the challenge skills sweet spot. It really focuses attention on what you're doing. And Mihai Csikszentmihalyi, sort of the godfather of flow theory, theory, sat down with a Google mathematician and they once back of the envelope calculated, thought the difference between challenge and skills was roughly 4%, right? And that's a back of the envelope. We tried to test that number and we found it was fairly accurate as like a metaphorical guidepost. And what's useful about that is 4% is outside your comfort zone. So shyer, meeker people are going to have to get used to being outside their comfort zone, but chargers, hard type A, peak performers, 4% is so much smaller than what you're normally trying to tackle. So like I'll find, you know, that means as a skier, I won't like if I'm comfortable on a 10 foot cliff and I want to level up my game, I know that like peak performance takes place in this window of like safely of like four or 5%. So I won't try to like simply jump a 30 foot cliff. I will go 12 feet, 14 feet. 18 feet. He, Laird Hamilton, the big wave surfer once pointed this out to me and I totally agree. And he said, you know, when people look at what they, we do, it looks absolutely insane and impossible. They see me riding a 60 foot wave and they go, Oh my God, what the hell is that? But what they didn't see is me at five years old riding a one foot wave and at six years old riding a two foot wave and at seven years old riding a three foot wave and eight years old riding a four foot wave and not, and so forth. So you, you didn't see the chain that got me here. You just see the end result and you think, oh, there's no way I can do that because you miss all the steps. Great point. Uh, I'm pretty sure Laird has a documentary on Netflix, I think, and he, he even uncouples that about that slow building process. Uh, I, I'm really intrigued, though. You, you were talking about this a little bit earlier, and it, it's around that game selection. And and one of the things you uncover, and I know a lot of David Epstein's work, he's a past guest, uh, just about really kind of not diving all in right off the bat and really decoupling and, and, and practicing a few different yeah, things yeah. at one time. Yeah, if you if the past recipe, which we talked about earlier is essentially a formula for match quality, right? The point of David's recent book is range. Um, and there's, there's a David Epstein blurb on the back, uh, back of the book because um, I don't know David super well, but I called him and I was like, dude, I think I wrote more about your work than almost anybody else's work besides my own in this book. Um, so you got to like, take a look and see, did I screw it up? And you know, and he was, he liked it. it was kind enough to give me a blurb, but I like, his stuff on match quality instead of immediate specialization, right, is essentially about hunting for the intersection of multiple curiosities, right? Where do your curiosities intersect your values and your strengths and all? Like, that's the bundle you're looking for, in a sense. And um, he's re- his stuff is really a great argument for that component. And, I, you know, it's, it's worth bringing up secondary thing, which is one of the things that I've tried to do in this book is there are 
awesome, 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 awesome books about pieces of this puzzle. David wrote a great book about match quality and learning. There are phenomenal books about focus or habits, mindfulness or gratitude or flow for that matter. But what there isn't, what I'm hoping the art of the possible actually is, um, is the first time we've looked at the entire big picture put together and especially backed by neuroscience because now that's what unlocked it, right? Two things happened over the past 10 years. One, the neuroscience massively accelerated. Two, peak performance went from this invisible art where nobody talked about it. Um, and if you worked in that field, you worked with the military or you worked with, with professional sports teams and you never shared secrets because there was a competitive, right? Like if I'm working with peak performance with the U.S. Special Forces, I'm not going to go like write a book about what I'm doing because our enemies are going to read that book, right? Like you don't do that and you didn't. And then podcast happening happened. And suddenly peak performance was made visible and you could see the full suite and the neuroscience was made visible and put them together and you could get art impossible. You can be like, Oh yeah, here's how they all fit together. Here's why. And here's the blueprint. Um, which is not, you know, those other books are a lot of them are awesome. They really, really, really are. Um, I'm just hoping that this is the first time you're like, oh, now I get it. Now I know why I have to do all these, you know, things and how they work together and what I can throw out. What's nonsense? Also, yeah, yeah piecing all that together. One thing I'm thinking about though is, is there's going to be people who are listening to this and they're like. I don't have this mindset. What are you talking about? These huge astronomical goals. What do you say to those people who, who don't yet want to take on those big challenges and, and just don't really don't, have that growth mindset? Yeah. So I will say I've spent 30 some years basically studying those moments in time when the impossible becomes possible. I'll tell you the two clearest lessons from my time are one, we are all capable of so much more than we know. Two, human potential invisible, especially to ourselves. Human capability is an emergent property. It emerges when we push our skills and use our skills to the utmost again and again and again. So I don't blame you as my point. All I'm saying is you're probably capable of so much more than you know, almost to the T with very few exceptions of everybody I've encountered in thousands of people who have tackled these kinds of challenges and succeeded against them. Almost none of them started out extraordinary people. Hmm. They all did extraordinary things. They all started out just like you and me. They had a slightly bigger vision maybe, or a slightly bigger dream and they went at it and went at it and went at it and discovered small eye impossible after small eye impossible after small eye impossible along the way, right? It's, one step at a time and all this stuff works like compound interest. So you have to like, you apply it day after day after day and yeah, you'll start noticing differences, but it's like three years in when you look around and you go, Oh my God, that's what I, that's you asked me when we started this conversation, maybe we can bring it full circle as we end it. What's different three years from now? Like what's different is I can look back over the past three years and I can go, Holy crap. How the hell did I do all that? I wrote four books. I launched an eight-figure company. I, uh, you know what I mean, like, I, and I, I built a house and moved my family and blah, did a whole bunch of other things. And it's like, I did it in four years. And like, if you would have gone back to my twenties, 
if I would have pulled one of those things, my first book took 11 years. You know what I mean? If I would have pulled one of those things off in a four-year window, that would have been a huge win. Forget like 12 or 15 or whatever, right? That's, I mean, like it would have been a miracle if I would have just one of those things in that, in that time frame. And um, that's sort of my point is I don't like, and maybe this book isn't, I, I say this book is definitely not for everybody, right? But I do believe that the only thing that is more emotionally difficult than the toil of trying to live up to our dreams is the emotional pain of not. Right. I like, I think we know, I think, you know, on a daily moment by moment by moment basis that you're here to do something. And, and look, I understand that there are people in incredibly challenging situations where there's something to do is simply, I'm going to figure out how to feed myself. I'm going to figure out how to like get away from this toxic relationship. Like those are the first, right. Those are, those are the first impossible you're going to have to solve and they're awful and they're, they're hard. Um, and, uh, but once you solve those things, right, it's, well, okay, I did that. What else can I do next? What can I do next? What can I do next? And, um, that's, I think the real point. So maybe it's not for everybody. If, you know, if you're totally, totally, totally psyched about average, you know what I mean? And there are a lot of, like, there are a lot of people who love that. who are like, you know what I mean? Like my life is fulfilling. I'm good with everything I'm doing. I don't cool. Totally fine. There's a ton of peak performance stuff in there and might help you do the stuff you're doing a lot better, but maybe you don't want the use goals. Cool. Um, but as a general, I think most of us got that little voice inside us that's saying, hey, man, you sure? You sure you, you sure you don't want to try a little harder or do a little bit more or go, you know? And so that's that's what I mean. And I, you know, I, I like people who have unreasonable expectations for their lives. I do. I appreciate that. Yeah, I, I feel like I'm here one time and I don't know why I wouldn't push the limits and try to get everything out of this. Um you, you were talking about, yeah, absolutely. And I'm assuming the majority of the people listening to this, they're, they're absolutely high performers and looking for that as well. I am thinking about, um, the skills and just decoupling your own skills. And I'm always intrigued about how do you approach just doubling down on your strengths or trying to level up some of those weaknesses you have? How do you approach uh, that? Yeah. Okay. It's a great question. Here's how I think about it. I think it's worth, you, you want to train your weaknesses, but I train my weaknesses very, very slowly. I will pick one or two weaknesses a year and I will poke at them in an hour a week kind of thing and do it very, very slowly because training weaknesses is really demotivating for me. Other people might be a little bit different and there's a reason they're weaknesses. And often when you're training up true deep weaknesses, you're trying to get over a, a belief barricade to a trust barricade. You have to believe you can do this thing, right? Not just do the thing. You have to sort of change both. And the research seems to show that that's best done slowly, a little bit at a time. So one of the secrets there is you got to, I mean, training weaknesses sucks. You know what I mean? Oh, yeah. Like, <laughs> uh, and I can give you, you know, an example, examples from, 
if you want, of, of like ways I approached it, but strengths, which is the other side of the coin, I think that's a learning skill. And what I mean by that is uh, there's really good work on strengths by Martin Seligman, Chris Peterson. I like their work a lot. And they found that if you work in such a way where you use one or two or your three or four of your core strengths the most, it is a great flow hack. It produces a tremendous amount of flow, which is very, very beneficial. And obviously, when you're working with your strengths, you pay a lot of attention. It feels better. You generate some neurochemistry. You learn a lot more. I don't say don't do that. I say integrate your strengths. Like the research showed by Seligman, if you really want to lean on your strengths, try to use one of your t- kind of three to five core strengths in a new way every week, right? Try to try to live and work that way. I do that stuff inside of my work, right? I'm going to write every day, no matter what, because I'm working on a book or a project. And so I will always write in such a way that I'm trying to train up a weakness a little bit and leverage a couple of strengths mm. while I, while I do that. I won't go out of my way often uh, to train up my strengths outside of, you know, the core things that I, that I, that I do, you know what I mean? I tend to keep those like the strengths that I will leverage are the strengths that I'm going to use in skiing or writing or doing uh, flow research, kind of like the, those things. Whereas weaknesses are, you know, I realized uh, a couple of years ago that, I kept having difficulties because um, my I just hated dealing with lawyers. I hated contracts. I hated legalese. And um, the deeper I got into the business, more I, the more I started to realize contracts are actually your friend, and they're ways of really preserving relationships in the face of hardship and blow, and that and they're beneficial. And I was once I sort of got to that mindset, I was decided that I was going to learn legalese, which is awful. Right. I mean, my brother's a lawyer. I like it's it's sort of in my family, but like the language is terrible. But I, you know, and I started very simply by reviewing all, all of my contracts, every contract I'd ever signed that I had floating around my computer. I just started once a week. I would read like three of the contracts and look up every term I didn't know. And, you know, just kept going and kept going. And the way I sort of judged my um, progress was. Every time I talk to my lawyers, one of my lawyers uh, for, for a business thing, which is usually once or twice a month, it was how much of the conversation scale of one to 10 did I actually understand, right? Like how many times did I have to say, hey, I'm sorry, you just got to explain that to me like I was a four-year-old. What the hell did you just say, right? Like I counted the, it was a simple scorecard for me, but, um, you know, and it, it, it took about a year and a half. Till I was really comfortable with the, the legal language that surrounded every aspect of my job and the work I did in the world. Um, but I did it very slowly and I didn't get mad at myself for, you know what I mean? You got to, with training weaknesses, you have to absolutely forgive failure and you have to sort of realize one of the reasons all this stuff is so hard is learning is invisible. You're bad until you're better. Right. Our experience, because learning has to happen in an adaptive unconscious level. So our conscious experience is this sucks. This sucks. This sucks. This sucks. I'll never learn this. I'm terrible. This sucks. I'm a failure. Oh, fuck. I did that. Right. Like that's the experience of it kind of thing. Often, um, of, you know, on, on, our, on our end of it. I, Andrew Huberman, who's a neuroscientist we do a lot of work with at Stanford, says, and I think this is totally true. 
Um, this is the biggest difference between peak performers and everybody else is that peak performers know that it's always crawl, walk, run, and everybody else will look for a shortcut around crawl and around walk. They want to like, I just want to run. I write like, and peak performers are like, well, you're going to waste two to five years. This is the biohacking crowd who will, right. They will do anything to find a quick, I mean, they'll spend days measuring their poo and their calories so they can get like 0.001% better kind of thing. Cause it's easier than like making a psychological fit that'll make you grittier so you don't have to get that right like it's i i see i see that a lot in that world yeah yeah no i i love uh dr andrew huberman's work out at stanford uh he's got some great stuff he's an upcoming guest as well uh one thing i, I would love to tackle there and, and just question around uh, i love how you how you position those weaknesses because those can be absolutely draining i almost view it like if your structure is writing that structure is the outline of a house and then within that house you can work on kind of painting a certain door a certain way we can call that a, a weakness so that way the main things you're working on are, are the big balls you're trying to move but then you can tackle your weaknesses within that is that kind of what you were saying so I said, there's an order to this whole thing. So I think, and I'll give you a big picture. Five, you, the first thing you got to do is you got to align your first, those core five intrinsic motivators where we started. Then I said, there are three levels of goal setting, right? Big mission statement, high, hard goals, how you fulfill that. And then clear goals, what the shit you're doing today to try to get to your high, hard goals, which tries to get you to your mission statement. And then next up, there are six kinds of grit which you need when the motivation and the goals stop working, which they always will. Right. Um, Cause the path to impossible is long and that like, you're going to run out of motivation. Like the focus for free is awesome, but there are just going to be days where like, it doesn't matter and you're screwed and you need grit. What the research shows is perseverance is where you start. You start with physical perseverance. Then you go into cognitive perseverance then you seem to want to start training up um, thought control, like controlling, right? That's a separate kind of grit. So perseverance, first level, second level is thought control. What's going on upstairs? Third level is training to be your best when you're at your worst. We can come back to that in a second. After you've got that shit down, then, in my opinion, should you start training weaknesses because it's so demotivating to train weaknesses that if you haven't lined up some of the other grit skills first, you could end up like they could KO the whole enterprise, right? Because it's so crappy to do that stuff that it like it really freaks us out and we feel helpless and it erodes our confidence and blah, blah, blah. So I, I, I say there's a bunch of other grit skills you work on first. And then you come to your weaknesses. And once you are there, the next level is the grit to control your fear, which is, I think, kind of like the final big, it's the hardest one. It's the most rewarding because fear gives you the most focus for free. If you think about the stuff that scares us, you can't stop paying attention. The problem is if fear is producing too much anxiety or cortisol, it blocks all the good peak performance stuff you need. So you have to really have a lot of confidence in your motivation and your grit skills, right? So that when you're actually like are dealing with weaknesses and fears, the stuff that's at the back end of this process, higher chances of success, right? You want to set yourself up for success when you're training grit in that way. And that's how I think about it. 
Oh, no, that's awesome. That's why you're the expert. I'm just the one asking the questions here. That was fantastic. One, one thing you did hit on, I, I just want to hit on real quick, is just being your best at your worst. Could you tackle that for a second? Yeah, so let me give you, let me give you an example. So this is not, this is actually, if you go to psychologists and you say, what is grit? They're probably going to give you some version of Angela Duckworth's current definition, which is the intersection of passion and perseverance. I don't, she's right, grit, you, that like you will find gritty people who have their intrinsic motivations stacked up correctly and they're matching up with perseverance. But if you talk to peak performers, they will tell you, hey, there's six levels of grit. And when my head sort of got kicked sideways on this, I was talking to Josh Waitzkin, who, if you're not familiar with his work, he wrote the book, The Art of Learning. He was a chess grant master. Then he became a, a martial artist and a master in two different martial arts. And I was doing the same thing in surfing. So four different disciplines, one cognitive, three physical and, uh, and wildly different. Like one of his martial arts was Tai Chi push hands and the other was grappling and jujitsu, right? Radically different arts. Um, and he achieved expert level mastery in all of them. So knows a thing or two about this. He said, man, the thing you got to train is the grit to be your best when you're at your worst. That's the real distinguisher for peak performers. Let me give you an example of what that looks like in my own life. I give a lot of speeches. I give a lot of high consequence speeches. Um, I, uh, when I practice my speeches, I write them. Then I'll do them for uh, uh, my, I have an editor uh, who, uh, who I work with on a almost weekly basis. So I'll do them for him, make sure it's tight, practice it out loud a couple more times. And then I will, wait for a day when I didn't get seven, eight hours of sleep the night before where I was up late, didn't have a lot of sleep. I'll work a 10 to 12 hour day. I'll go to the gym and I'll go doubly hard at the gym. I'll come home. I'll take my dogs and I'll hike up the mountain behind my house and I'll deliver my speech. Hmm. And if I can give a speech exhausted while going up a mountain at the end of a 14 hour day, I can give it anywhere. And I'll give you an example of why you do that. I got a really amazing opportunity a couple of years ago. I opened for Obama at a very big conference in health in uh, Norway or Finland, Norway, I think. And uh, it was, it's obviously a big deal. There were like 25,000 people in the auditorium. There were another 50,000 people watching. So it's 75,000 people, which is a very big audience. I'm standing backstage. I'm about to go on. I'm standing with the guy whose conference it is and he's looking really nervous and I'm really casual. And I'm like, dude, chill out. I got this. The talk is exactly 37 minutes. Like you asked 37 minutes. They wanted it 37 and 30 seconds. And I said, it's 37 and 25 seconds. So I've got five second leeway. Don't worry. I got this. He said, what do you mean? And I said, what are you talking about? He said, you didn't get the note. We sent out two weeks ago. So what are you talking about? He said, you have to make this 32 minutes. Oh, by the way, you're on in 10, 9, 8, and threw me on stage. And I had to cut in real time five minutes from a speech that I was giving for 75,000 people while opening for Obama. And it was a I had fun and I did it. Um, but I had to solve that in real time. And that's why you, because under like I already knew I was like well that's not as hard as giving a speech while running up a mountain and totally exhausted I know that like I, I've done both now and I can definitely tell you it's not and I knew that walk on the stage so I was like okay I've done this 
under conditions of absolute exhaustion, finding five minutes that I could cut out and talk faster for, I got this. And, um, and by the way, I brought it in at 32 minutes and 10 seconds. Um, <laughs> No, I absolutely love that. I love hearing these stories, man. Steven, every time we get to connect, uh, I learn so much, walk away learning so much more. For anyone who hasn't, isn't quite as exposed to your work, what else do you think they, they should expect going into this, in, into the new work? Well, um, let's give people like a kind of look. At the, the, the things that you should expect is the book covers four major categories. Motivation which is a catch-all, right, for intrinsic motivation, grit and goal-setting, learning, creativity, and flow. And the, the reason behind that, that is essentially the cognitive peak performance suite. That's our biology. That's all of it. The way to think about it is if peak performance is a, is a game where you're sort of competing against yourself and, and the world in a sense, motivation is what gets you into the game, right? Grit and goals kind of keep you there right? Learning is what allows you to continue to play. Creativity is how you steer and flow is how you turbo boost the whole thing beyond your reasonable expectations, right? That's sort of, that's the whole suite. So that's all the stuff we're going to cover. And it is the most, hopefully you got this too. It is, it's a big picture. It's a big think book. There's no way around it. Um, but it's also, as far as I can tell, with the exception of Bold, which I don't think was as good as this, hopefully, in my opinion, these are the only two like big think how-to books anybody's ever tried to write because um, it's a moronic thing to try to do. It's so hard. Like as a, as a writing challenge, it's really like you shouldn't ever do that to yourself. Um, but I felt it was really, you know, I was very, one of the other things I was very frustrated with, books come out of frustration sometimes, right? This one was like, God damn it, people are doing it wrong and they're making it harder and more complicated and they're ly like they're lying and they're gussying up like, oh, this is this thing that I learned, so I'm going to tell you it's the secret. And that would be like me saying, flow is the only secret there is to peak performance and I'm the world's leading expert on flow, so let me tell you flow, flow, flow. Well, that's not true. Yeah. There's actually motivation, learning, creativity, right? There's a suite of tools here. My, like the one thing that I can sell and make money from in the world, like it's not the secret. Nobody, one person has the secret. Um, it, uh, it's a, there's a, it, it's, it's a frustration. It shows up in the tech community too. You see it with flow where people, flow is this huge, complicated change in neuronal processes, neuroelectricity changes, neurochemistry changes, networks change, which structures of the brain get act, all of it. There's a lot of people who have like EEG headsets that can drive you, use neurofeedback to get you to like eight to 10 hertz, which is baseline brainwaves for flow, but it's not flow. It's just the like sort of the brainwave tuning for flow. Um, it's also the brainwave tuning for basically like daydream and a couple other things, you know what I mean? So like there's a bunch of people, some of whom are friends of mine who have devices on the market that will, and they're running around saying, use our thing. It gets you into flow. Well, no, it doesn't it gets you like one quarter of the way there and it may not actually be the most important quarter because we don't know. Right. And it may be different in individuals. Um, and we don't know, like there's a lot of questions I have around that. And I get nervous whenever I see that. Just like when I get nervous, when people are like, Oh my God, I've cracked the code on habit and the code on habit is the only thing you need to know. And let me teach you habit one, two, you know, you're like, well, uh, not so much. Right. Like, and I'm not saying, um, some of this stuff, you know, I'm very 
when there's not data, for example, long haul creativity, how do you sustain creative decision-making, creative performance over the long haul? I openly admit like, hey, this is a part of the book where this is a really important part of peak performance and we don't yet have the data. So I have gone out, I've interviewed the best people in the world about these problems and I'm giving you the best, you know, the, the advice that comes up the most commonly out of interviewing a thousand people. 20 of them said this, 20, of, you know what I mean? That's sort of how I did it. But I'm trying to steer from the data as much as possible rather than steer from like the thing that I discovered. Gotcha. Um, kind of thing. No, no, that's great. Two more quick ones here as we wrap up. I'm, I'm wondering for you, what's next in terms of what don't you know yet about uh, peak performance? So, yeah, it's a great question. Uh, next in, in July, I actually have another novel because I- Of course you uh, do. <laughs> I have another novel. Well, also because I, I, that's a challenge. I don't think I've managed. I've written five novels at this point. Two are published, two are in drawers. Six, not yes. Two are, two are published, two are in drawers that'll never get published. And one is coming out. I haven't solved that yet. You know what I mean? Like my novels, um, they're not, they're not communicating at the level I want them to communicate. They're not fun enough. They're, uh, there's a lot of, I'm, I'm writing cult classics. I'm not writing, big, broad, you know what I mean? And I want to try to do that. So there's challenges there. And uh, no, the next big book is on intuition, which um, it, to me, I call it the last uncharted wilderness of human peak performance. And um, it's, uh, it's sort of, we talked a little about the goal-directed system, which is the most important thing going on inside of us and the least understood system by most people. Um, like you can't walk up, I can walk up to most people and say, Hey man, fear shapes your perceptions, for example. And most people kind of get, they're like, yeah, I kind of knew that. Like, or, you know, that, I, that idea is in the ballpark. But if you walk up and like, yeah, you're a goal directed system. Do not take advantage of that. They're like, what, what are you talking? I'm a what? Huh? Right. And yet it's sort of who we, a big part of who we are. And it's a big part of like how our intuition works uh, neurobiologically. So that's what I'm tackling next. Um, and it actually, um, I say this now, I think it's going to, I think we're going to wait a little while. Like, I think it could be a couple years hmm. till we see this one. Um, uh, or at least if you see the top shelf and the shelf beneath that behind me, I think two thirds of those books are an insight and intuition. And I have to go back through all of them again <laughs> before I can write this next book. So you know, how long does it take me to read 17 textbooks? Yeah. Uh, start the clock. <laughs> yeah, a, little, a little bit of time. Final one here as we wrap up. I would love to know, anyone throughout history, dead or alive, just not a family member or friends, if you could do this, just have an evening interviewing, talking to William them. James. William James, yeah. not even a question. Okay. Harvard, Harvard philosopher, psychologist, founder of psychology. Um, open. There's a lot of William James book, quotes in the book. I have flat out said, I said this, I think in Stealing Fire, um, I, in the, I dedicated Stealing Fire to William James because I, I sort of feel like he was there first. Hmm. And all a lot of, not entirely, but a lot of what I'm doing is taking his ideas and layering in neuroscience. So I'll give you one simple example. We talked about, I have said, getting your biology to work for you rather than against you is like peak performance. hundred years ago, William James said, the great thing then in any education is to make your nervous system, meaning your brain and your body, your ally, not your enemy. Hmm. Right. He knew that a hundred years ago. We now know why exactly. Right. He was right. 
And because we know why exactly he was right, I can train you from it, right? I, we can use it. I can, like, James made this great comment, but okay, how the fuck do you befriend your nervous system? We're like, okay, like, what? Right? And now it's 100 years later and we're like, well, okay, gratitude practices, tips, the negativity bias towards the positive and mindfulness separates emotion from feeling in a way that you're less reactive. And we literally like this three or four other techniques, but we know how to exercise, tame our nervous systems for peak performance. We didn't back then. In fact, you know, James was writing about meditation and varieties of mystical experiences. He thought it was a tool for spiritual people, Mm -hmm. right? That's where but he was right about like it helped them tune their nervous system. He just thought you had to be religious to do it. hundred years later, we're like, oh, wait a minute. It's just biology. I got it. When we focus on breathing for a while and lengthen out our breathing, amazing things seems to happen to our performance. That, and now we know why, right? Down to like exactly what it does to the anterior cingulate cortex and what, you know, blah, blah. I love it. Every single time, Stephen, stretching my imagination, making me think deeper and harder. You are Stephen Kotler. The book is The Art of Impossible, a Peak Performance Primer, out January 19th. It's linked up in the show notes. Stephen, once again, I can't thank you enough for joining us on What Got You There. My pleasure. I just want to remind people, nothing says I love you like The Art of Impossible. You guys made it to the end of another episode of What Got You There. I hope you guys enjoyed it. I really do appreciate you taking the time to listen all the way through. If you found value in this, the best way you can support the show is giving us a review, rating it, sharing it with your friends, and also sharing on social. I can't tell you how much I appreciate it. Looking forward to you guys listening to another episode.